So we know that if Roe's overturned, abortion care services will cease in our state. So there'll be three things that happen. Some people who need abortions will travel, will try to get them elsewhere across state lines. Some people will try to manage their own abortions outside of the healthcare system. And some people will not be able to access abortion care at all. This episode is coming out on June 1st, 2022. And sometime in the next few weeks, the United States Supreme Court will issue a decision in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Their decision in this case could have huge effects on abortion legality and abortion access across the country. To learn more about today's landscape of abortion access in Wisconsin, what the Supreme Court decision could mean here, and what the research tells us about how limitations to abortion can affect people's health and well-being, I talked to Dr. Jenny Higgins. Dr. Higgins is the director of the UW Collaborative for Reproductive Equity and director of the UW-OBGYN Division of Reproductive and Population Health. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's HealthCast. I am very grateful today to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Jenny Higgins, who is the director of the UW Collaborative for Reproductive Equity and director of the UW-OBGYN Division of Reproductive and Population Health, about some um, possible upcoming changes to abortion access in Wisconsin and our understanding of kind of where we are now. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you attending to this really important and timely issue. I want to start our conversation just laying some groundwork with common terms. I always find that really helpful, especially for topics that can be confusing or contentious, just to know exactly what we're meaning when we're saying some words. And I also want to give a little caveat at the beginning for me to say, I'm going to say um, people who are pregnant or pregnant people. I'm going to say people who need abortions because... um, Abortion care is care that impacts uh, lots of different folks, not just cisgendered women. So I want to be really inclusive of everyone who may need or may be interested in knowing more about abortion. That sounds great, Jackie. And that's very consistent with the way we try to approach it at UW Core. We try to assume gender neutrality whenever we can around these issues, unless in the research the term women is used and therefore we're not sure exactly um, whether that uh, whether that term is capturing anyone who doesn't identify as a cisgender woman. So uh, there'll be times when I use the term women because I'm citing research, but I, like you, I endeavor for gender neutral language and I appreciate your background on that. Some of the common terms I thought we could start with um, I want to actually just start with maybe a definition of abortion. What do we mean when we say abortion? It's a good and and simple uh, question. So abortion is defined by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, right? So the um, the OBGYN major professional organization in our country as a termination of pregnancy, right? So this could be uh, an abortifacient or a drug that causes an abortion or a procedure that ends a pregnancy, but it must occur after a fertilized egg has implanted into the uterine lining. Uh, you just mentioned two things that I also wanted to ask more about and see if we can get definitions about. Um, one is medication abortion. Um, what 
what is a medication abortion? Am I using that term correctly or is there a different way to refer to it? And do we know when or why um, people would choose medication abortion? Yeah, so there, as you know, there are two types of abortion. There are medication abortions and what we now call procedural abortions, but that are sometimes known as surgical abortions or in-clinic abortions. Let's start with medication abortion. So this involves taking pills to cause a miscarriage. And I will just say that there are two different types of pills. They're both approved by the Federal Drug Administration. One is misoprostol, um, which is also known as Cytotec. This works by causing the cervix to soften and the uterus to contract, which expels um, pregnancy tissue. And the other medication is mifepristone, which is also known as um, mifeprex. And what mifepristone does is it blocks progesterone, which is a hormone that tells the body to keep a pregnancy progressing. So while misoprostol can cause an abortion and is sometimes used alone for medication abortion, it's more effective when used in combination with mifepristone. So those are both um, used for medication abortion. So either misoprostol alone or misoprostol and mifepristone. And that latter combined regimen is the standard one, say, used um, by abortion providers here in the state of Wisconsin. Medication abortion is extremely effective. It is recommended only through 12 weeks of gestation. There are parts of the world in which medication abortion is used safely later than 12 weeks of gestation, and the World Health Organization um, has created guidelines for medication abortion after 12 weeks, but here in the U.S., we we consider the 12-week limit for medication abortion. It is within the first trimester about 97 to 98% effective in ending pregnancies. That's an estimate by the Federal Drug Administration. Given that it's similar in efficacy, similar if not identical in efficacy to procedural abortion, which I'll talk about in a moment, why would somebody choose medication abortion? There are a number of reasons. Some have to do with just personal preferences for Privacy, for example, being able to have an experience at home with a partner or a friend or a family member. For some people, it feels like a more natural experience. It also can be um, the a mode. It can be the only modality that someone who, for example, lives really far from a clinic can access. So sometimes people are constrained in their choice to have a medication abortion, while some people choose it very willingly and autonomously between the two choices. When we look at the national numbers, about 50% of abortion uh, patients in recent years have selected medication and abortion, and about 50% have selected procedural abortion. So you've just given us a very solid rundown of medication abortion, um, Earlier, you also mentioned procedural abortion, which I had in my notes as um, surgical abortion. So I really appreciate that clarification that procedural abortion is sort of the, the preferred um, language or the preferred nomenclature. Um, can you tell me more? What does procedural abortion mean? So procedural abortion is when someone goes into a healthcare clinic and a healthcare provider 
empties the contents of the uterus, usually through um, suction and curatage. And the while this procedure is sometimes called surgical abortion, there is no surgery involved, which is one of the reasons why we, are, we have tried to move the terminology to procedural abortion. This method is also extremely effective, perhaps just a little bit more so than medication abortion in um, not perhaps, definitely a drop more effective in terminating pregnancy than medication abortion. People might prefer this method because it is done in one healthcare visit. There is not a prolonged process. One is much less likely to have heavy bleeding after the fact, and pain control can be, pain management can be offered pretty well at the time of the procedural abortion. So, both medication and procedural abortion are incredibly safe, and it's extremely rare that people experience complications. And in fact, researchers have done a wonderful job of comparing the risk of serious side effects or adverse events with abortion modalities compared to other common healthcare procedures. And so, for example, having a medication abortion as directed or a surgical or procedural abortion as directed entails less risk of serious complication than taking Tylenol or having one's wisdom teeth or tonsils removed. And it is also much safer to have a first trimester abortion than a birth, right? So someone who carries and delivers a pregnancy at full term has about 14 times the odds of dying um, from childbirth than someone who uses abortion in the first trimester. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit. So I know this is data that's tracked by the U.S. Center for Disease Control's abortion surveillance statistics. Um, So from that data, like what do we know about when people get abortions? Can you tell me a little bit more about when in pregnancy people are most commonly accessing abortion care? First trimester abortion care is overwhelmingly the most common form of of abortion care in the U.S. and Wisconsin. So in 2020, in Wisconsin, 87% of abortions took place before 12 weeks. And nationally, that figure is almost identical at 88%. So overwhelmingly, people seek abortion care in their first trimester. We know from research that people who are delayed in their abortion seeking or delayed in their pregnancy recognition are often those people who face multiple structural constraints. So for example, homelessness, eviction, substance use, health conditions that might delay the recognition of a pregnancy. So the very people who are most in need of social support also can be delayed in abortion seeking because of some of those constraints. We also have evidence from research that abortion restrictions and closures of clinics, as you might imagine, lead to increases in the number of gestation, in, excuse me, in the number of abortions that happen later in gestation or after the first trimester. So in landscapes in which abortion services are relatively available, accessible, affordable, an even larger percentage of people can seek abortion care early in pregnancy in situations in which abortion care is less accessible, affordable, people are often forced to have abortions later in pregnancy. You asked about 
what we know about when people get abortions, and maybe I'll say a drop about who gets abortions. And I'll just lift up here that people of, of course, all backgrounds have abortions, but we do see some trends. So the majority of people who have abortions are already parents. That's about 50, 59% of um, abortion patients nationally. We also know that among those who get abortions, 75% live on low incomes. So these are, again, folks facing socioeconomic constraints who are the most in need of abortion services. We also see incredible consistency across religious affiliation. So that people who, for example, hold a Catholic religious affiliation are no more or less likely to get abortions than people of other religious denominations. And as you know, abortion is also very common, right? So about one in four people in the U.S., and I should say here, about one in four women in the U.S., and here we use the term women since that comes from the study, um, will have an abortion by age 45. That is, of course, given the current landscape of abortion care. The rate of abortion has gone down significantly since Roe v. Wade in 1973, and that's almost entirely due to not only declining birth rates nationally overall, people are just having fewer pregnancies, but also increases in uh, the quality of contraceptive services and options. I wanted to circle back on something that you mentioned. Um, hopefully I get this right, that uh, people in areas where abortion is more accessible, more affordable, there are fewer barriers to care, um, tend to receive care earlier in in pregnancy. And I guess that made me think about the current landscape of access in Wisconsin. I, I'm kind of curious what abortion access looks like in the state that we are in, the state that we're recording in today, um, and what kinds of restrictions or limitations might be in place for abortion care. And I should also say, we're having this conversation on May 24th, 2022, and things may change in the coming weeks. But today, on May 24th, what does abortion access, what do abortion restrictions look like in Wisconsin? Right. So at the time that we're taping this, as, as you say, abortion is still technically legal here in Wisconsin. That's really important for folks to know. I think it's extremely important that people understand abortion legality does not equate into abortion accessibility. Right. And that is absolutely true in our state. So in Wisconsin, current restrictions make abortion difficult, if not impossible, to obtain for, for many people, especially for Wisconsinites living on low incomes and in rural communities. So some of the current obstacles that people in our state face include mandated waiting periods, multiple visits to a clinic that are medically unnecessary, bans on telehealth so people could not access medication abortion services, by telehealth, even if they live very far away or are immunocompromised during the COVID pandemic. We also have a, um, insurance coverage prohibitions in our state such that people who receive Badger care or state employees like myself, um, we, do not we don't have abortion services covered through our insurance. 
So in a case like badger care, that means someone is is in need enough to have public assistance to cover prenatal care and birthing care, but not to receive the necessary funds to obtain an abortion, which can be a huge hurdle. As you know, many people in the U.S. don't have $500 on hand for an emergency expense, and that is what abortion is, it's an emergency expense. We've seen in our research that in the past decade, as the Wisconsin legislature has implemented an array of laws aimed at restricting abortion, 40% of our state's abortion clinics have closed, and this has further limited abortion access. So right now in Wisconsin, we have only four healthcare clinics uh, that are located in three counties. So in Dane, Sheboygan, and then two in Milwaukee. So 96% of counties in our state do not have an abortion provider and nearly 70% um, of Wisconsin people of reproductive age live in a county that lacks an abortion clinic. We've seen increases as a result in driving distances to obtain abortion care in Wisconsin. And as you'd imagine, increases in driving distance make an abortion more costly in terms of both time and money. We've documented that in the counties in Wisconsin that experienced the biggest increases in distance due to those clinic closures, birth rates rose significantly in the years following, suggesting that people who would have otherwise been able to access services if those clinics had remained open became unable to access those services without additional distance. So we already have evidence that people in Wisconsin aren't getting access to the care that they need. And that landscape will shift even more dramatically, of course, if all of our clinics close. So I guess that leads me to two questions, because I wanted to ask if there are some communities who experience today's restrictions more steeply than others in the state. And it definitely sounds like between um, income and resource level and also uh, proximity to a clinic. Those are two pretty big barriers or hurdles to, to finding care. Absolutely. Right. So, so people living economically constrained lives are going to have more difficulty um, accessing abortion. And people who lead constrained lives in, in other ways, including due to systematic racism evictions, um, communities that don't have social supports, those people will also have a more difficult time raising the funds, taking off time from work, finding childcare, um, being able to even recognize a pregnancy earlier on and then get the services that they would like. We've talked about what abortion access looks like today in our state. Um, the reason we're talking today is uh, because we've seen a leaked draft from the U.S. Supreme Court that strongly suggests that within the next several weeks, um, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that protected abortion rights, will be overturned. And um, that could pretty have some pretty big effects on abortion care and access in our state. Um, what I know that we don't know. Truly, 
right now, today, we don't know exactly what those changes will look like. And there's so there's not a lot of certainty to discuss or be provided. But I'm wondering if we have a sense of what kinds of changes are possible in our state in Wisconsin when I would say if, but I have a, I feel like it's when, um, that, that Supreme court decision is, um, official later this summer. That's what we're all talking about and thinking about. Right. And so I will say, even if the status quo remained in place, even if Roe v. Wade remained in place, we would still have major um, barriers to accessing abortion care in Wisconsin for the reasons I outlined a moment ago. However, if Roe is overturned, then the landscape will change very dramatically. As you know, we have this 1849 law that potentially becomes enforceable when Roe is overturned. There are lots of reasons to think that this law might not be enforced in certain moments or that certainly lawsuits will go into the court system right away around this law. We're not exactly sure how it would be interpreted. Nonetheless, regardless of that law, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin has said it will halt its services if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And that seems uh, also likely to happen at our state's independent abortion provider. So we know that if Roe's overturned, abortion care services will cease in our state. So there'll be three things that happen. Some people who need abortions will travel, will try to get them elsewhere across state lines. We can talk more about that. Some people will try to manage their own abortions outside of the healthcare system. And some people will not be able to access abortion care at all. Right. And we have already seen that latter category emerge when we've seen clinic closures in our state. And so we would highly expect that to increase when abortion services become unavailable here. What kinds of impacts on people's physical, emotional health and well-being are possible um, without legal access to abortion? Are there um, studies or data or examples in other places across the country um, that we can look at to give us some insight into like how losing abortion access affects people's overall health? There are studies, incredibly well-designed, beautiful studies in, that have found profound negative outcomes for people unable to obtain desired abortion care. So people who are denied an abortion and who go on to give birth are, for example, more likely to stay in abusive relationships because they, they're continuing a pregnancy with the partner. Um, they're less likely to achieve aspirational goals. They're less likely to complete post-secondary education and more likely to experience persistent adverse economic outcomes compared to people who, who do and who do receive desired abortions. So while abortion by itself is an important part of reproductive health care, reproductive autonomy, access to abortion is also a determinant of health and well-being across the life course, right? So it's not just that the, the banning of abortion will take away an important part of reproductive health, a part that's upheld by the American Medical Association, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, et cetera, but also it will 
lead to worse health and social outcomes for people and their kids and families over time. We also know that abortion bans would lead to an increase in pregnancy-related mortality, not because of unsafe abortion, but because carrying pregnancies to term and giving birth are inherently more dangerous or riskier than having first trimester abortions, as I mentioned. So the ratio is about 14 times the, the odds of mortality. And of course, those increases in morbidity and mortality will be especially concentrated among Black people and other marginalized communities who already face um, birth inequities and reproductive health inequities. You've um, kind of mentioned this. You've mentioned this already, and I think I'll just ask for a second repetition. Um, what does someone in a state with either tight restrictions or no legal access to abortion do um, if they want to terminate a pregnancy? What are what happens next? So it's really important for people to know that if Roe is overturned, it doesn't mean that abortion is illegal everywhere. It means that abortion will become illegal in certain states. So in Wisconsin, we border at least two and potentially three based on this new court decision, what we're calling destination states. And so these are states where abortion will remain legally protected even if Roe is overturned. So Minnesota and Illinois for sure. And then Michigan, we believe, will also be a destination state. And there is a clinic in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan that could serve some uh, patients in northern Wisconsin who need care. So people in Wisconsin who find themselves in need of abortion services, one option is to cross state lines to obtain abortions in other states. So Duluth, Minnesota, the Twin Cities, Chicago. There are efforts to build services in northern Illinois, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Also, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is committed to providing services and referrals to patients to the degree that they can. So even though they cannot administer medication abortion or perform procedural abortions, they can um, provide day one services, for example, consenting, information sharing, ultrasound if necessary, and, and referrals to patients elsewhere. So people in Wisconsin should know that they can continue to call Planned Parenthood with their abortion-related questions, even when or if, but likely when, abortion becomes unavailable here. People will also turn to managing their own abortions. Self-managed abortion just refers to any abortion that takes place outside of the formal healthcare system. And compared to the days of Roe v. Wade in the 70s, we now have very safe and effective medication abortions, as I mentioned, that can be used to end pregnancy. So mifepristone and misoprostol. These are used in standard healthcare systems. They also are provided by some um, nonprofits and other services that people can access these medications by mail. And we research suggests that people are already using these services. And in fact, use of these services increased both with COVID, as one might expect, because getting to clinics was more challenging, as well as with SB8 in Texas. So when the six-week ban in Texas went into effect, 
Aid Access, which is a service that provides medication abortion um, pills by mail, saw more requests from Texas residents for their services, as, as you might expect. In terms of people looking for procedural abortion services, I suggest um, a resource that that I'm familiar with called that called abortionfinder.org. Abortionfinder.org. People can put in their zip codes and figure out the clinic locations that are closest to them. So that will be another resource for people looking for care in the formal healthcare system in clinic, which would be out of state in the case of Wisconsin. How do those services work? Um, I, I, you may or may not have a sense of what the process is like and who's involved with accessing a service like that. The predominant providers of self-managed medication abortion are either run by or closely engaged with physicians who are involved in the way the services are run in um, uh, counseling and information as well as follow-up care to people who use the services. So what we have seen in the field is that there are a variety of online resources available to not just help people seek self-managed abortion, but to get both information and legal support if they're in, in search of that. So Services like this include SAFE and Supported in the U.S. The acronym is SAS. Plan C, which is an informational resource for um, people looking for self-managed abortions. There are also legal helplines, including something called If, When, How. So If, When, How has a reproductive legal helpline. And then, as I mentioned, there are organizations that provide access to medication abortion pills shipped by mail, including online pharmacies and telehealth services operating outside of the formal healthcare system, but closely supervised, right, and engaged by, um, by clinicians with expertise in this area. So aid access is, is a commonly known service, and evidence suggests that people have obtained pills through aid access for a variety of reasons, including inability to afford in-clinic care because aid access services are usually between $100 and $150 compared to um, the $500 to multi-thousand dollars that people might need to raise to get to a clinic out of state. Um, people also may use aid access or other services because of privacy concerns, long distances to care, COVID-related barriers, et cetera. I feel like with abortion care, as well as with um, really a lot of sexual and reproductive health care in general, um, information I find online or information I find from searches might not be accurate or correct. And it can be hard to tell sometimes. It can be a little tricky to evaluate whether what my search results are giving me is, is really, you know, safe scientifically, medically accurate, correct information. Um, how can someone evaluate what they're seeing, um, find what they're finding online uh, about abortion to see, you know, to try to gauge whether it's scientifically and medically accurate, like correct information? Yeah, it's a great question. And I wish I had the exact right answer here that would be clear and would help people cut through all the incorrect information out there. 
you're absolutely right that research suggests lots of people experiencing unwanted pregnancies turn to Google for guidance, right? And the internet can democratize access to information, but it also can contain a substantial amount of incorrect or biased information. There are, of course, a number of scientifically and medically accurate websites out there. And what what I have seen is that people on the advocacy side and the service delivery side, as opposed to the research side where I'm at, have really tried to lift up those, those more trustworthy sources of information, including SAS, this thing I mentioned, safe and supported in the U.S., um, the M&A hotline, Plan C, aid access, if, when, how. Those are some of the, the sources of information where um, people can go to find more, more medically accurate information. People also should be encouraged to reach out to their local Planned Parenthood, even in states like Wisconsin, where, where abortion services may no longer be available. And finally, states like Wisconsin have abortion funds, which provide financial and logistical sometimes support for people in need of services. And they also can provide often, I think, evidence-based resources for people looking for information on abortion. In Wisconsin, those funds are the Women's Medical Fund, the Options Fund, and the Freedom Fund. And in any state, someone can go to the National Network of Abortion Funds website, which is NANAF, N-N-A-F.org, to find more information on their closest abortion fund. So the coming weeks, I think, are going to hold a lot of change, and um, it's maybe going to be People might be interested in some good sources to try and keep up with uh, when the Supreme Court decision is issued, what that can mean for access across the country. Um, do you have any suggestions for sources to look at sort of the big picture um, landscape of abortion, abortion access in the U.S.? And then in Wisconsin, where can we keep up with uh, what the changes mean, any research moving forward to see how... Uh, possible changes to abortion access affect Wisconsinites um, in the coming years? There will certainly be a flurry, right, of activity around the Supreme Court Dobbs decision. And I think that at the national level, organizations such as the Center for Reproductive Rights or the Guttmacher Institute can provide real-time, perhaps, indications of not only what's happening nationally, but at state levels, right? Those are organizations that track state-level legislation. Here in Wisconsin, there will certainly be, again, I think a lot of flurry, as well as some some lack of clarity around exactly how and when our 1849 statute will be enforced. I think that Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin will certainly be updating um their uh, communities and patients regularly. So if people wanted to stay on the loop, they might want to follow um, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin on, on Twitter or other social media outlets. I know that here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, we are trying, there are, there are efforts to, to think about how do we provide patients with information that they may need, and those efforts are in place. And here at UW Core at our research initiative, we are trying to uh, provide real-time 
research and policy briefs on what's happening in our state and what might happen to people in our state as a result. So as an example, um, we had a in the days following the leak decision, we put out a research brief on what might happen here if Roe falls. We will soon have a research brief out on self-managed abortion and what we expect to happen in light of Rose Fall here in Wisconsin. And we would expect to have um, other research and public-facing briefs in the days following the, the Roe decision, or the, the Dobbs decision, rather. Dr. Higgins, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me about this shifting and important topic. Um, I'm just so grateful for you um, joining me today. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the chance to talk about this important issue and also to acknowledge we have a a, a ton of amazing providers, researchers, um, constituents, and others working on these issues, and, and I'm grateful to be among them. Links to all the resources Dr. Higgins mentioned during this episode are available on our podcast page at womenshealthcast.podbean.com or in the show notes of your podcast app. The Women's Healthcast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode is produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Healthcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our podcast page. Thank you for listening. <laughs>